This show is part of the Roarbots Podcast Network, a celebration of popular culture. The Roarbots geek out about everything from movies, books, and animation to games and unique travel destinations. For more podcasts and great content, visit theroarbots.com. This is Kwame Mbalia, and you are listening to The Great Big Beautiful Podcast. Well, we have one of those new talking machines. Now that is something. It plays music right here in our home. Progress is something we can't take for granted. Progress takes a lot of people wanting it and willing to work for it. You are listening to The Great Big Beautiful Podcast. This week on the show... The, the power of the imagination for me is not necessarily with any particular agenda in mind other than that's my way to get back into the, the magic of childhood. Here's your host, Jamie Green. Welcome to another episode of The Great Big Beautiful Podcast. It is great to have you back. I am your host, Jamie Green. And thanks for coming back for another fantastic conversation. This up at the top of the episode is just going to be me today, so I'm going to make this short and sweet. But Shiri Sondheimer and I had the opportunity to speak to Min Lei, um, who is a fantastic uh, children's book author. Uh, if you are unfamiliar with his work, you really do need to get to, uh, well, I was, would say get to the library right now. If you're listening to this when the episode is new, getting to the library might be a little bit difficult. Uh, but somehow get your hands on one of his books. You will not be sorry. His newest book is called Lift. It is a collaboration with artist Dan Santat, who has also been a guest on the show. You can check out the archives for our episode with him. It's an adorable book. Um, it is also Dan and Min's second collaboration together. They worked together previously on a book called Drawn Together. Um, Min's other picture books are The Perfect Seat and Let Me Finish, which I think was his first book. Not quite sure, but it is a, a uh, personal favorite in this house. It is all about spoilers and, and remaining spoiler-free. Uh, it's an adorable book. Definitely check that out. Also relatively uh, recently released from Min is a graphic novel in DC Comics, kind of new DC, oh, I'm going to mess up the official name, but it's DC Comics for Young Readers. Um, They're full-length graphic novels that are targeting younger readers, not the grim and dark um, uh, audience and, and stories that are being told in many of the monthlies. Uh, but it is about a, it is a Green Lantern story. It's called Green Lantern Legacy, and it follows a uh, a, a new lantern of Vietnamese heritage, uh, and it is just just a really good, fantastic, important story. Uh, if you are a fan of DC Comics, if you are a fan of Green Lantern, uh, if you are a fan of Min Lei, uh, definitely do check that out. The book was il- illustrated uh, by Andy Tong, and uh, Min wrote it. And uh, so, yes, Green Lantern Legacy and Lift are the two books that are out now, uh, the two most recent books that are out now. And we talk about them. We talk about his previous books. We talk about, um, you know, current events uh, pandemic wise and why it's important to still be creating art and stories in the midst of a worldwide pandemic when everything, just 
everything feels so uncertain at the moment. Um, but it's a fantastic conversation. I do thank you guys for coming back week after week. You can find the show at therobots.com or at thegbbpodcast.com. You can find us on Twitter at Roarworthy. Uh, you can find me personally at the Roarbots on Twitter. Um, we are no longer on Facebook. We deactivate. Well, I am no longer on Facebook. The the Roarbots, uh, I believe, is still there. Um, we're not really all that active on Facebook, but I finally deactivated my personal account. I just enough was enough, um, and so we have left Facebook behind. If you are still there, no judgment. But if you are looking for us, you might want to come over to the website or find us on Twitter. Until next time, I am Jamie Green. Thank you guys for subscribing. Thank you for coming back week after week. And here is our conversation with Min Lei. Um, I wanted to start off with, I'm always interested about the backgrounds that people come from, especially if it doesn't immediately seem like there's a, a, like a, an, a, a direct connection. And now I read in your bio, you have a bachelor's in psychology and a master's in ed policy. Right. So it sounds like working with kids in an education was part of the plan. But when did you decide to sort of parlay those skills and that knowledge into writing for kids? Right. Um, that's, a, that's a great question. And um, uh, a question that I thought about all the time while I was paying off all my student loans. <laughs> <laughs> but um, so in undergrad, I, I had a major in psychology. But um, and I said, say that, that was very much kind of like a function of me not exactly knowing what I wanted to do. And I was like, this sounded like psychology sounded interesting um, and kind of like broadly applicable. So I remember graduating and my uncles and aunts were like, so does this mean you're a psychologist now? I was like, no, 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 no. <laughs> Unfortunately, no. Um, but I always knew that I had this like creative itch. Um, and senior year of college, of undergrad, I took an introduction to children's literature course. Because um, I've always had like an affinity for children's books. There's something about the combination of um storytelling through text and the visual art, the combination that to me just hits on all cylinders. It's like, right. it's, that's the type of stories that I love to, um, that's how I love to experience stories in a lot of ways. And that's one that resonates with me and the kinds of how I visualize stories. Uh, I used to be, do a lot of painting and drawing, um, but I kind of let that fall by the wayside. But so even though I'm not an illustrator, I think very visually. So when I'm writing, I'm writing with, um, not a specific image in mind, but with a story that is told through images. Right. Um, and if you look at the picture books that I've done, there's very little text. Um, and it's very much a partnership. So I've, so it's kind of a, it's always been in the back of my mind. And when I told people in undergrad, when I graduated, when they asked me what I wanted to do, my answer was always work in a small town library and write children's books. Nice. That was the dream. Um, <laughs> Then I moved to D.C. afterwards with some friends, and they were there like to work like on Capitol Hill for like congressional staffers, this and that. And I was like, oh, tag along, moved yeah. to D.C. And um, worked at, I know you live in the area, so I worked at Tortilla Coast, this um, Tex-Mex restaurant on Capitol Hill. Okay. And, and then I eventually got a job um, scanning books at a public library in D.C. Uh, and that was like a dream job, just like sitting at the front desk, hanging out with kids in the kids' section, like... I must have read like the first two chapters of like a thousand books. So I'd read books, it'd be great. And then like, someone else would return a batch of books. And I was like, oh, no. And it's like, I kept like um, picking things off the conveyor belt. 
But I always loved books and stories. And so while I went the education policy route for grad school, because I started working for different community organizations, running after school programs, and then um, working with literacy programs, I went the policy route because I wanted to affect change in that way. But I never really let go of the idea of writing for children. Right. Um, and then after grad school, my then girlfriend, now wife, was working abroad. So I was like, done with grad school and sent writing like tons of cover letters and stuff like that. And I was like, this is the worst type of writing in like, <laughs> the world. Like, there's nothing oh. that's more disingenuous than like a cover letter. <laughs> Yo, yeah, absolutely. I was actually just reading somebody on Twitter complaining about cover letters saying it's like interviewing for a job. You don't even know what the job is or what they're going to ask you. Like, you don't even know what the questions are. <laughs> I, I, I compared it to like the combine the worst aspects of a job interview and a first, a first date. <laughs> yeah, oh, God, yeah, that's perfect. That's perfect. And so I started a blog about children's books mm-hmm. while, while I was going through that just because, like, I need a creative outlet to remind myself, like, writing can actually be fun and not this, like, soul-crushing exactly. <laughs> Um So I did that, and it was just really fun to get back into – to the world of children's books and then from there I kind of discovered the there's a very rich um online world for children's literature and so once I figured that once I started to connect to that um things started to unfold I started to review for more I was asked to review for more established outlets and then about like five six years later my wife and I we go on these long drives to visit my folks and she was like you act a lot of times as if you failed at publishing a children's book but at the same time you've never actually sent anything out <laughs> to <laughs> so it's kind of like that kick in the pants I need like you're right I, I it's one of those things and I'm not sure if you sympathize with this or feel this way you have this like very clear idea of, like I'm not a I don't consider myself a particularly ambitious person mm-hmm. but the one thing I would feel like I left on the table if I didn't go for it is like publishing a children's book or writing a children's book. I was like, that was the one point of clarity that I had. But at the same time, I was like, it felt like a frivolous or silly dream to have. So I was like, on the one hand, it's very clear this is something I want to do, but then I would undercut myself by saying, well, it's silly. Or like, who am I to, to, to do this, right? So then you spend like all this time just like knocking yourself down <laughs> at the right. starting. Um, so my, my wife very kindly pointed it out and gave me the kick pants I needed. So I was like, um, I had all these like journal of just like half baked ideas. And I was like, okay, I'm just going to pick one that feels like the most close to the finish, the closest to the finish line and just go for it and see what happens. Um, so that's a long way of saying that I've always wanted to, to be involved in books somehow. Um, and it kind of took me a while to get there. Yeah. You previously worked with Dan Santat on Drawn Together, which we love. Um, And aside from the awards and accolades that that book received, I assume the two of you enjoyed working together since you came together again for Lyft. Yeah, no, I mean, working with Dan is a dream. I mean, he's such an amazing talent and and storyteller. Um, When I got the opportunity to work with him the first time, I I just couldn't believe it. As like a, I was a debut picture book author and... Um, my editor thought that Dan and I would make a great pair. So, so she made that connection. So I actually got this, <laughs> I got this email from my agent at the time. 
And he said, we have a chance where we're with Dan Santat. This is when Dan was fresh off his Caldecott win for Beagle. Um, and he said, we have a chance where we're with Dan Santat. I need two to three book ideas from you within the next two days because so we can like strike now. Otherwise, he's about to go on this like Caldecott victory tour and we might miss our window. And I was like, we, my wife and I had just gone back from the hospital with our second son. Um, so I have this very strong visceral memory of being up at like three in the morning, rocking this newborn to sleep. And you're like, how do you write a story for someone who just won the biggest award in children's literature? And, um, and thankfully, Drawn Together is, is what came out of that. But yeah, getting to, to do a book that was that personal with him was so, so amazing because he brought so much of his own um, experience and cultural background to the story that made it really special to me. Um, and then, so when we got the chance to work on a second book, um, I was, I had had this vague idea of a, a book about an elevator button. And then one, once the idea of doing it with Dan clicked in, it just seemed like the perfect thing for, for him. For, for, for me as an author, my goal with a manuscript is to write something that's almost like just like a vague concept that the illustrator can sink their teeth into and kind of like work their magic. So with this story, it's about a, a girl who, um, who loves to push elevator buttons. And um, one day her, her little brother gets to push the button instead of her and she just is not having it. <laughs> she, she, she gets really upset. Um, and then she discovers a magic elevator button that when she puts it up by her closet door and pushes it, the closet turns into this magical elevator that takes her to, to these different places. And for me, I was like, this is something I want to see. I want to see where Dan can take this, right? So for the manuscript, it was, I kind of wrote everything up to the, up to the actual door. And like she pushes the button. I'm like, and then for the notes, for like what happens on the other side, I left that totally up to Dan. Because I was like, Dan is such a strong storyteller and such a visual person. I was like, I want to see what Dan wants to see on the other side, what he wants to draw, where he wants to take the adventure. So it was very much a collaborative process. Um, but in the, in, since you all know picture books really well, you know, they're like, we don't work together through the process. So for me, it's kind of like writing a manuscript with that space for collaboration built in so that I can like pass it off to Dan and he can come to meet me halfway with the, with the story. And he always just like totally knocks it out of the water. Or next out of the park would be the, the right way to say it, I guess. So Dan obviously is a special uh, case because he's so just so good. Um, but you've worked on a number of different picture books with a number of different artists. Um, and I'm just wondering how that process of quote unquote collaboration has been. I mean, as the author, do you typically have a vision in mind for what your book should look like before he or she even begins? Yeah, and I've been lucky to work with so many amazing illustrators. And something that I always tell people when they ask for advice on like writing picture books as, a, as an author who's not an illustrator, the first thing I tell them is that I never refer to it as my book, right? It's like, it's always our book because it is so, it, it requires so many people. And the truth is like, if I had the talent and skill to illustrate the book myself, I would, I would go for it, but I don't. <laughs> um, so working with, with Dan and other illustrators I've been lucky in that every time a book has come out, the way I describe it to people is um, 
the final product is more beautiful and more fantastic than I could have possibly imagined. But at the same time, it's exactly the book I had in mind, if that makes sense. And that's like the, the dream as an author. It's like, I, this is the story I wanted to tell. This is the book I wanted to have out there. And, but I couldn't have pictured it looking like this. Exactly. Right. Um, so I do, like I said, I write and think very visually, but it's like a very, it's not a concrete picture that I have in my mind. Um, I, I was describing it to someone recently as it's almost like you wake up from a dream and you remember what happened in the dream and you remember the story, but you don't have like, I don't have like a clear visual on all the details, but I have like a sense of what the dream was. I have a sense of what the story was going on. And that's kind of like how it, how I approach a manuscript. Like I have a vague visual sense of the story enough for me to write it. But then I leave the room for the illustrator to, to bring their own visual skill to it. Cause I'm, I'm kind of like as selfishly speaking, when you're working with so, such talented people, it's like, it's in my best interest to let give them something that they're excited about, that they want to work on, that they can um, unleash their own talents. I know that sometimes when authors are too prescriptive and they're like, this is my vision, I just need an illustrator uh, to execute it. I'm like, that's a recipe for disaster as far as like, my approaches. I like I feel like you um, that doesn't seem fair to the illustrator to me to can't think of them as just like a, a contract worker. It's like they're co co storytellers and like co collaborators. Um, and I think that makes for the the most seamless type of book, at least in my experience. And what makes all this go is having a, a great editor who can manage that process and make sure that it all fits together seamlessly. But I would so I would to answer your question, I would say I do have a, a vague vision in mind, but um but that vision is purposely very loose. Does that make sense to you? It makes perfect sense, yeah. How do you find that your uh, writing process is different when you're writing a script for a picture book versus when you're writing a script for a graphic novel? So that's a really great question in that with a picture book, I take a really light touch, right? Um, like as very few notes as possible. Um, just to, but since the text and the visuals are very different, like if you took the text out of our the picture books that I've written, um, you'd have no sense of what the actual story is. They kind of like the visuals and the text kind of like run on parallel related tracks, right? So the notes that I give for the picture books are just enough so that the illustrator knows what's has a sense of what's going on, and the text makes some sense going page to page. Um, when I started the graphic novel. It's totally different in that um, they wanted more and more and more detail. So I'd write like describe what's in the panel and have the any dialogue, and I submit it, and they're like, um, "Yeah, we need a little bit more information about what's going on here." I was like, "Are you sure? Because I don't want to step on anyone's toes." And they're like, "No, like give us." It helps the in this process. It helps to the artists to flesh things out if they have as much information as possible for every panel. And for me, that was a big struggle to, to not feel like I was overstepping. Um, so I like keep, they keep pushing me to put a little more detail, a little more, a little bit more. Um, and with the graphic novel process, the editor, myself and the illustrator were all on one 
rolling email thread. So I would send in text. Um, the illustrator would send in draft sketches, and then we'd all just kind of comment back and forth, um, which is a totally different way of doing things than the picture book world. Um, but I think it, they both work really well in different ways. Um, the going from a pic, I was talking to someone going from a picture book to a graphic novel felt kind of like what I imagine going from a short story writer to a novel would be right. Going to like because I think of graphic novels almost as like a full length or like a, a feature length picture book. <laughs> um, so it to my first love was always picture books, but kind of like graphic novels for young readers is coming up fast. It's like, I'm really enjoying that type of storytelling as well. And when you go from having 32 pages to suddenly 120 pages, you suddenly realize you have like so much more room to work with so much more space to kind of like explore different side stories or like develop characters and develop a little bit more nuance than, um, than you might otherwise. It's almost like <laughs> having like the, the quick, three-minute Pixar short at the beginning of a movie and then the whole movie, right? Um, and I love both of those types of storytelling, but it's, um, but they're related in a, in a way. And, and I, I've really enjoyed the go, going back and forth. Right now I'm working on like a graphic novel and a picture book manuscript, and it's kind of a nice change of pace to, to mix things up. So both Lyft and Green Lantern Legacy focus on the power of children's imaginations, even though they do so in very different ways. Was there a particular impetus for writing those stories now? And why is that such an important topic to sort of keep in the forefront of people's minds, do you think? So, yeah, I, for me as a kid, I was always a very shy um, quiet kid and so the the quote-unquote power of the imagination is something that I um, leaned on a lot like I wasn't necessarily um, comfortable engaging with the people around me or the outside world all the time so I would kind of find ways to to have those types of interaction and adventures like through my own um, imagination so for me and what's interesting is that I always look to like the imagination and like stories and books. Um, I used to think of it as like this like retreat from the world, right? It's like, I don't want to deal with that. So I'm going to deal with this. I'm going to kind of like go internal. Um, but now the ironic thing is that now as an author, it's like books are now like my entry point back into the world, right? Cause like now I get to engage with people through the books. I get to, um, at least when we could travel, go into schools and talk to people and do readings and make these amazing connections with all these people that I never would have otherwise. So it's a strange, um, the imagination as both the entry point into the interior and then that opening the door to this exterior mode of interacting with people has been a really fun development. And for me, writing, a lot of what writing for children turns out to be, for me at least, is trying to recapture that sense of wonder that you had as a kid where like all these different things are possible. I mean, when I thought about the idea for Lyft, I was going in the, an elevator with, a, with my family 
And I had like my like infant son back then. And we walked in and we pushed the button. And, you know, kids just all of them love to push elevator buttons almost to the, the point of frenzy or like there's always <laughs> infighting. But um, I remember thinking like, what is this experience like for a baby? You walk into this strange metal box, <laughs> the door is closed, this ding happens and then the door opens again and you're somewhere completely different. <laughs> like, what is this magic room that you took me into? <laughs> um, so I was like, I can't imagine what, and that trying to, put myself in the the mind space of a young child who's still trying to make sense of the world at large and then you and you throw this curveball at him with this like magic door and like what would it be like if that door actually did take you somewhere completely different somewhere fantastical and not just to another floor of a building um and so that that's how that idea kind of came uh, across so the the power of the imagination for me is not necessary with any particular agenda in mind other than that's my way to get back into the the magic of childhood yeah um lift and legacy both came out around the same time so i'm assuming that there was some sort of overlap on you working on them at the same time um, or at least thinking about them at the same time did one help inform the other at all um, that's a, that's a good question. I mean, I was kind of working on them concurrently and there, there's some overlap with the books perhaps, but I think, um, if you look at all of the books I've done, I think I have five so far. Um, there are kind of common themes that kind of weave themselves through all of them. And someone was like, okay, so all of your books are basically about the power of the imagination and like the importance of family and connecting with people. I was like, that's one way to sum things up pretty nicely. <laughs> like, thank you for for um for getting my thesis statement so so clearly. Um, so yeah, I, I I wouldn't say that those two are particularly influencing themselves beyond the fact that like my tendencies as a storyteller kind of gravitate toward these like overarching themes, and those kind of like manifest themselves in everything that I write, um, at least so far. Um, so I've been really lucky. I've had the chance to speak to Sarah and uh, Marika and Melissa and Michael about their entries um, into this sort of new canon of DC graphic novels for young readers um, and how they each got involved in the project. project. Um, how did you get involved? And have you always been a Lantern fan? Was that your first choice? Um, yeah, so that's a that's another great question. When I um when I first got the call from DC Comics and they're like, We're about to start a new line of crap novels for young readers, we'd like to invite you to pitch a story. Um, I was like, I, I think you have the wrong number or you have the wrong minute because I write I write picture books, you know that, right? And they're like, No, there's something about the the type of storytelling that you that we think we're we're curious to see what you could come up with. Um so when she was like, Take a look at all our characters from like Superman, Wonder Woman, Batman on down um and see what see if you can come up with anything it's kind of i was like that's both the dream and super intimidating (laughs) to be like just like take a look at the entire dc universe and and have a go um so i i kind of like took a step back um once i like picked my job off the ground and like looked at everything and (laughs) i even had like a pitch for a more obscure character named firestorm for a little while that i was playing around with um, but then when I got to Green Lantern, I was like, I've always knew of, knew of Green Lantern, 
but it wasn't a character that I had like really sunk my teeth into before. But then when I was looking at it and I was like, there's something really familiar about this character. And, it, and it's about a character who has this, um, this power ring that's drawn to the individual's strength of will, right? And they have to have really strong will. And that's what kind of um, generates that power. And I realized like the reason this seems so familiar is like, I know someone who fits that description. So I had this like flash of my grandmother who always wore a jade ring and is like one of the strongest will people I know. I always remind people that I'm Vietnamese American and I was born here, but my grandmother was very much responsible for getting a lot of my family out of Vietnam at the height of the war when things like really went, were, were getting bad. So she's always been a natural hero in my own family story. And so once I had that image, I was like, what would it be like to have a Green Lantern character who was a grandmother? And like, it all kind of clicked into place. And I was like, and a lot of times people ask me, so what was it like to write a, a Vietnamese boy as a superhero? That was really super cool. Um, I was like, yeah, it's, it's great. But my real entry point was like, I want to write this grandmother as a, <laughs> as a superhero because that's something I haven't seen as much. Um, and what's great now is like, I've, the more I dig into the Green Lantern universe, the the more um the more I'm learning to appreciate it and there's so much richness there and it was the fact that there are so many Green Lanterns, I was like it felt very natural to create new characters that could kind of slot into this already rich universe, right? And um I I respect the people who have been able to like take a a character like like Batman and completely repurpose it repurpose it, but that felt like too much of a an undertaking for me i wanted to kind of put something that would still fit in as well as possible to to the world that people already know um and that fits in with the theme of legacy because with with the characters like it's a boy and trying to figure out how he fits in with his own family's legacy right like the the traditions he has the the family that he has and it's the same dynamic and Imagine it's like if you suddenly find out that you're a member of the Green Lantern Corps, there's this huge legacy that you're now a part of, something that's so much greater than you. It's like, what are you, like, how you navigate your own individuality within this larger collective is something that seemed to fit very well with, like, how I felt as a as a boy of that age. And it those parallels just seem to fit very well with um, with those themes. And, and a lot of people ask, have asked, like, is it strange to write a superhero story for, for kids? And uh, my answer like, not at all, because so many of those themes of, like, uh, these origin stories are the exact same themes that you'll find in other middle-grade novels, because it's all about coming of age, coming to terms with, like, your own powers, coming to terms with, like, the changes within you, how you fit in with the world around you, what you're going to do when you face different problems. And within the superhero genre, you have those same dynamics exaggerated because suddenly you can fly or you have this ring or like you're facing like these like super villains, but the underlying dynamics and emotions are very much the same. Right. So, um, so being able to explore some themes that are already existing within the, the non-superhero storytelling world, but through the lens of uh, a superhero story like Green Lantern was super fun. Um, and it's it's like I said, it's been a dream to get to do that. Um, so I also write for Book Riot, and um, one of my colleagues, Jess Plummer, pointed out that it's 
very rare still, unfortunately, for a male presenting hero to have a female presenting mentor. And Ty actually has two, his grandmother and um, one of the other lanterns. And uh, John Stewart actually cites Ty's grandmother as one of his mentors as well. Um, so you mentioned your your grandmother. So tell us a little bit more about you know your inspiration for that dynamic. Yeah, that that's a interesting point. I, I don't think I mentioned this too, but I used to write for Book Riot back in the day. So um, I'm, I have a, a soft spot in my heart for for Book Riot. <laughs> um, I think my part of the how I landed my agent was I had written this book was like must have been like seven years ago now. Um, about imagining James Franco on all these different book covers because he had had that one as I lay dying book cover. And so I had like, I photoshopped him on the cover, like all these classic novels just for fun. <laughs> um, so yeah, no, I, I love book, right? But yeah, for, for me, I mean, I'm very aware of those, those gender dynamics. And, and to me, um, it never felt natural to have just like all male mentors and not all, all that. I mean, I, grew up as one of at, at some point there were 20 grandchildren and I was the only male for for a long until I was like 13 or 14 and I work in education now where I'm like the where I'm one of the early education where I'm from one of the few males and all the my mentors and all my bosses have always been female um and a lot of people I look up to naturally are have been female. So it just made sense to me that that would be the, that felt like the most natural dynamic just because of how I, the world that I'm in. But I, I, I'd be lying if I said I didn't take that into consideration and wanted to try to balance that out a little bit and show that as a natural, um, a natural relationship to kind of break out of the, the more gendered and like, exclusive ways of um of storytelling so so yeah it, it was both just that's what came naturally to me but i i was aware enough to to make it a point um to to have that relationship in there and looking at the the broader green lantern universe was like there's so many characters to choose from um let's choose from an array that will give the story, the type of natural diversity that makes the most sense that that is both organic but representative. Um, and it was fun to kind of play with like John Stewart in particular always felt like a very like authoritative figure. It felt like a, a nice counterbalance between if his men, one of his mentors is gonna be his grandmother, who has this very personal relationship with um and very warm relationship with, what would it be like to have another mentor who is a little bit more by the book and a little bit more um rigid and have that relationship develop over time um to kind of give that counterpoint so there are a lot of different elements that come into play for choosing the the different characters um but the the gender dynamics was something that did did definitely come into play and building on that um a lot of i was kind of poking around on the interwebs and a lot of lantern fans feel that that kim tran that um Ty's grandmother has dethroned Hal Jordan as the greatest lantern. Though, if you asked the two of them, you know, what defined greatness, they would probably disagree. Where does your understanding of greatness come from? You, you know, that that you have written this character who's 
finally booted Hal Jordan out of that top spot. <laughs> I, I also saw a recent story that kind of said um, that Hal Jordan is no longer the greatest Green Lantern, <laughs> which which is not a, not a um, a stance that I'm unnecessarily saying, but it was fun to see. It was fun to see an article that alluded to the fact that like uh, that a Vietnamese grandmother was now the greatest Grand Green Lantern in the universe. Um, but for for me. Writing this story was, and I love superhero stories, and I also grew up on reading a lot of like Greek mythology, and I always looked to stories for to read about heroes, to read about heroism and stuff like that. And it wasn't until I got older that I kind of realized that I didn't need to look outward or that far to find true stories of heroism because there were so many in or like, like my grandmother or other people in my family or other people in my community and if you look today it's like with everyone dealing this pandemic it's like you don't have to look very far at all to find like people doing amazing heroic things um without a cape right it's like and so for me to get a chance to kind of re um calibrate the scope of what people consider as a hero or as heroism um was definitely one of the things I wanted to, to take on. Um, there's a scene where she is a flashback to them escaping Vietnam and they're facing off against some like some pirates who are trying to to abduct the boat people. And that's a, a story and a dynamic, the dynamic that's very um, tragic for our particular history, my, my community's history. But recasting the the refugee story as one of inherent heroism was important to me because there are people today who are still embarking on those same journeys and those same and doing everything in their power just to do what's best for their family their community to find safe to find safe harbor and i feel like a lot of times in the media those stories get conveyed in a certain way that does not accurately or entirely capture the amount of heroism needed to go for that to to do that right so so for me it's like when i think about young readers um if a book can kind of help them look at the people around them a little bit differently and maybe have a new appreciation for the the true real life heroes that are around them um then and kind of broaden their conception for what a hero could be or what makes a hero um that would that was definitely something that i was hoping for and if that means that we've dethroned hal jordan then i guess that's a, a nice side side benefit <laughs> um so i actually have two questions from my kids they absolutely adore this book um they're 10 and 7 and before we get to the questions i just wanted to let you know that you know we got legacy early um, and it ended up being really important for them because after the synagogue shooting here, they were suddenly so much more aware of being Jewish and being other. Um, and Ty gave them a lot of comfort and courage. So it was a really important book for them. Um, my 10-year-old would like to know what your favorite part of writing Legacy was. Oh, wow. That's... um. That's, you're, you're going to make me cry on this, <laughs> but, um, my, that, that means so much to me in that, um, when I was writing it, we were 
in the midst of a lot of those same things. Like my, my wife is Jewish and we're raising our kids Jewish. So I remember one day we were driving to the, the temple and there were these police out front because of the recent rash of shootings. And we try our best to kind of not shield our kids, but like with the, a lot of the news and a lot of the horrific stuff, it's like, you don't want to expose them too much and they're very young, but we drive up and it's heartbreaking to hear this question come from the back seat. Like, why do there, why are there, why do we need police at the temple? Um, this sacred safe this space that should be safe suddenly coming under attack is such a heartbreaking thing to do um, or to, to realize. And it's, it's something I've been thinking a lot about more and more these days, like the role of storytelling during times of tragedy. And sometimes there are like uh, acute tragedies um, that have broader ramifications or like something like this pandemic where everyone is struggling with the same um, new reality. And I mean, the, the past, I don't know how many years it's been so hard to, <laughs> to kind of put um, storytelling and feel like you're still putting value out in the world. But one thing I've tried to rationalize it with or like justify things with is a lot of what I see as those um, horrific events that happen, I think are traced back to the to trace back to an inability to see other people as fully human. And it's not a it's not that's not the only reason, but a lot of the policies that I see that I don't agree with, a lot of the horrific news events and tragic things that happen are in at least in part because you're, the people aren't seeing each other as fully human. They're not they're somehow less than or they're not completely empathetic to that other person's full humanity. So if we put out stories like this that can somehow reaffirm people's the fullness of people's humanity, whether that's like their their heroism or their silliness or their just like like the the whole spectrum um then the hope is that that does contribute something to to counterbalancing some of the the horrors that are out there um but no it means it means so much that your your kids enjoyed the book and they found some meaning in it during some very meaningless times and i'm sorry that your your kids are also dealing with with that um so so tell your kids i said thank you my favorite part of writing green lantern legacy um well and the the idea of folding in the vietnamese history and like cultural aspects of a story were, were really meaningful to me but there are a couple the more fun parts of the story i thought or the more fun parts of writing process for me were like putting little easter eggs in there so there's that scene at the end where they're trying out different uniforms um, and we got to throw in like uh, a little tip of the hat to the original Alan Scott um, Green Lantern by having them just like goof off and like try out different different things. One one time they try out like a hockey uniform just for fun because like just imagine like kids suddenly having all this part of me like, but they're still goofy kids, right? It's like not, <laughs> they're a lot of times like in these stories that like you're thrust into it, experiences or situations that are beyond um the realm of responsibility of that age but you're by wanting to capture just like 
still just the inherent goofiness of just being a kid um, with your friends. You just introduce this new element to it, but still maintain your your humanity as a as a thirteen year old. <laughs> uh, my seven year old daughter would like to know um, why usually Green Lantern rings go to strangers, but ties got passed down in his family and that was particularly interesting to her so she was wondering why that particular ring got passed down in the family so that's a that's a great question um and the the nice thing about writing for dc comics um is that we would have a um i would work with my editor and there's also like a green lantern expert on staff so she's like let me go talk to the our green lantern person to see if this is this would this story line would work with like the um the basic functionalities of a of a Green Lantern ring. So with with the the ring, when someone is, when a Green Lantern someone who has a Green Lantern ring is passing away, the ring will find um the next bearer, right? So initially, I had the grandmother actually like giving the ring to Ty, um, and they're like, well, actually, that's not how technically how the ring works. Um, so in the story the ring kind of like flies down the hallway and finds Ty and, and it becomes his ring. But, and it's, I think it's the first time that it like passed that distinctly to with like within a family. Um, but if fits in that the ring is looking for someone with a strong will, right? So that could require it going all the way across the world or across the universe to find someone who's worthy. Um, it just so happens that in this case, the grandmother, Kim Tran's grandson, had the strong enough will or the potential for that will that the ring was able to find it right there. So the proximity is unusual, but it's based on the idea that Tai was, um, by his own inherent will, worthy of, of bearing the ring. So um, if he wasn't, it would have gone right past him and maybe found somebody down the street or <laughs> somewhere else. But um, conveniently, it, he was just down the hall. <laughs> I was impressed that she noticed. <laughs> <laughs> I'm impressed too. I want to shift gears um, quickly and ask you about Let Me Finish, which is one of your other books, because it's a particular favorite in this house. Um, I wanted to know, was there a specific event that inspired that book or just a general frustration with spoilers? It's That's a, <laughs> that's a good question. I am like... Um, totally allergic to spoilers. Like I, I can't like. Um, and it's funny because we've been watching as part of this like quarantine. I started watching Master Chef Junior with my kids. Um, and they've taken it on too. So like they'll when we finish an episode, and they'll show like a preview of the next what's coming up next. We'll all cover our eyes because we're like, if we see a a picture of the dish that's going to win, we'll be able to know who's the who's succeeding. And so, like, as soon as like the episode ends, like we either rush to turn off or like my my two boys cover their eyes, and it's like my wife doesn't mind spoilers, so she's just watching and she's like, what is what's going on over here? But um, I think at the time, um, it was I like just recently joined Twitter, um. And I think everyone at the time was freaking out about someone dying in Downton Abbey and just like watching that drama unfold on Twitter. I was like, I like I hadn't been watching the show, but I was like just seeing everyone like so terrified of um, finding out someone's death. I was like, that 
what drew me to that was both my aversion to spoilers, but the idea that it's how we engage these days with content. It's like, and when you find something that you love so much, you want to share it. You want to talk about it. You want to like be part of that conversation. Um, but then it also puts this pressure of like having to, it's like a race against time. It's like, you have to be able to, um, to take in the content in the time manner to have be part of that conversation. And it's that push and pull, but it's all the fact that it's all born out of a love for stories. is something that I really liked. So something that the illustrator Isabel Rojas did that I love is there are no villains in let me finish. It's like, everyone is just so they're It's just like based on like their own enthusiasm and like they're like their inability to like, we need to share, we need to talk about this. Um, and that's what's driving the propelling the characters to the story. Um, and I think that's something that I, I just love having a story where time to read and time and the story itself is the thing of value. Right. And getting in that experience, whether it's individual or communal, um, was something that I, I really liked to, to play around with. But yeah, I, I personally, what's funny is that I'm also, I personally um, am very against spoilers. Isabel, who's the illustrator, was like, after the fact, she's like, I didn't tell you this, but I actually um, relate to the animals more because I'm always spoiling stuff for people. <laughs> so I was like, wait, so you're the villain in the story. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> well, let me, let's ask one last question that will let you go because I know we've had you for a long time, but you mentioned just there um, stories as value. And I'm wondering if now, especially, are you finding it harder or easier to create and does it feel more important to be making something regardless of whatever that something might be? That's a really good question. Um, I think in general, we're all, everyone's struggling to find meaning these days. And like, um, I am lucky enough to have the the space to create. And it's, I was talking to Gene Yang about this and it's like, it's strange that we're in in this type of situation, you see who is essential <laughs> or like there's a very technical definition of like essential workers. And we're like, um, yeah, I am very, very much non-essential at the moment. <laughs> and, and that's a, that's something to kind of like reckon with personally. But the, the hope is that you're still able to put things out that do add value, that do add some positivity to, to the world. And, um, What's funny with a story like Lift is that it was written so long ago, um, but for a time when so many kids are trapped at home or like stuck at home or doing the important work of being at home, and like maybe a story about uh, a girl who discovers a magic elevator that turns her closet into this magical portal, um, Maybe that's the hope is that some kids will read that and then that will trigger something in their own imaginations to think about um, where they would go or like um, kind of like give that sense of space um, through through these difficult circumstances. So I, mean, I, I'm someone who has always kind of leaned on stories as a as a way of of processing things, whether they're hard times or, or, or fun times. And I. I do want to think that um, there's still value in, in putting these stories out there. 
I, I've talked to friends about whether or not the pandemic itself is creeping its way into their works in progress intentionally or not, or like if, if you should revisit what you're writing to to kind of fit in with what's going on now. And that's a really tough question to answer because we don't know books aren't being written now aren't going to come up out for another two years. If, if that, I mean, who knows what's going to happen with publishing. Um, but so it's like, for me, it's less about making things specific to our current situation and more hopefully putting out content that has some universal themes that can be applicable in any situation, if that makes sense. So I'm working on another um, graphic novel and I was like, do I had that question, like, do I change some of these conflicts to reflect more what's going on now? Um, but it didn't feel organic to the story that was already being told. So I was like more revisiting the manuscript to be like, do the does the story have value that can translate into different situations, including this one that we're in right now, and including anyone that may arise down the road. So I said before where <laughs> the friend of mine had like identified these like common themes in my books, um, or the books that I've written. And if one of them is the power of the imagination and the power of community and like family and and finding strength in each other and like the hope is that that's a those are themes that will that readers can find um strengthen through any through any situation This has been the Great Big Beautiful Podcast. You can find us online at thegbbpodcast.com and on Twitter and Facebook at thegbbpodcast. Thanks again for subscribing and listening. We really do appreciate it. And until next week, I am Jamie Green, and you can find me at The Roarbots. Take care.